Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hey friends, it is so good to be together today. My name's Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, I wanna say welcome. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you also. Um, after a month break uh, in order to study the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of this year, uh, now we are jumping back into John's Gospel. And we will be camping out here over the next few months together as we journey toward to the end of this book. And I just cannot wait to study it with you. Now, I've noticed a trend in both research and praxis over the last decade. And usually we, we see it tick up at the beginning of each year, and it's the resurgence of the desire to do hard things. So um, amongst my friends at the beginning of each year, I, I see a number of them who are doing um, what's called 75 hard. Anybody heard of this? So 75, no, okay, definitive no from the front, right? <laughs> so 75 days in a row, you follow a nutrition plan of your choice, work out two times a day for 45 minutes each time, one time must be outside, you drink at least a gallon of water, read 10 pages of a nonfiction book for personal development. You take a progress picture each day and post it online, okay? And then if you wanna get, take just a little bit extra, you take a cold shower or do a cold plunge daily. All right, who's signing up? Here we go, let's do this, let's do this. All right, here's the other trend that I saw. Um, rucking or rucksacking, where you work out, go running or hiking with a weighted backpack or vest on in order to build up resilience and endurance. You make it just a little bit harder on yourself. Or there's been a resurgence and the Japanese concept is of misogi. And the modern day practice is that you do one thing every year that you don't think you are actually capable of doing. So it might be signing up for a marathon or it might be taking a cold plunge in a nice cold lake or something like that that you just don't think you're capable of doing. I think all of this shows us that there's something inside of each one of us as human beings that wants to challenge ourselves. Like we wanna, we wanna push ourselves to, to the limits that we perceive that we have, even, even a little bit beyond them, just to see like what's latent in our tank that we might not be accessing. You know, it's interesting, if you were to turn back the clock a few hundred years, you wouldn't probably find anybody doing 75 hard. You know why? Because they were living 365 hard. Like their whole life was hard, right? Like, so they, they didn't have to wire into their life. You know, let's make this a little bit harder. You know what was hard for them? Eating every day. That's what was hard, right? Life was hard. And the world that we live in, especially in the West, is built around keeping us comfortable. Like there's not, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there is a, there is a downside to that. See, in a culture that's built around comfort, the muscle of doing hard things starts to atrophy a bit. And I'm not just talking about doing hard things physically, because we have to do hard things in every area of our life. We have to do hard things cognitively and emotionally and relation, relationally and even spiritually. Researcher and 
psychology professor, Angela Duckworth, wrote a great book a few years ago entitled Grit. And in her study, what she found out, catch this, what she found out was the most important factor in trying to determine a successful life is not how smart you are, your IQ, it's not your education level, it's not personality traits that God gave you upon birth, the most important thing that will determine if you are quote unquote successful in life or not is whether or not you are able to develop grit and resilience. A stick-to-itiveness when life gets really, really hard. You might define resilience like this. Resilience is the capacity of a person to maintain their core purpose and integrity in the face of dramatically changed circumstances to maintain their integrity when they lose the job, to maintain their integrity when the marriage starts to unravel, to maintain their integrity when they're rejected by their friends, to maintain their integrity when life gets hard. The research shows that your ability to be resilient is the number one factor that will determine whether or not you flourish. Let that sink in for just a moment. Did you know, did you know that Jesus taught that resilience is a necessary component, an ingredient to living a life of faith? Did you know that? Like it's not optional. It has to be a part of where we go as Jesus followers. Now, there's two two reasons that that is hard for us. Number one, we typically take the path of least resistance, right? Like water going down a hill, we're going to find the easiest way to get from point A to point B, and we are going to choose that path. So building resilience, we're like, "Mm, is there an easier way? Second problem, second problem, and this is specifically for people of faith. Oftentimes, the gospel that we preach has a line attached to it, and the line goes like this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you believe that? Raise your hand. It's true. Raise your hand. But in a culture that's built around comfort and ease like ours, what we actually hear being said is God loves you and has a comfortable plan for your life. That's what we hear. That's what we hear. And so when challenge comes, when resistance is met, when life gets hard, when we get that diagnosis from the doctor or that call from our workplace or the relationship starts to unravel, you name it, when life gets hard, we start to wonder, God, where are you? Where are you? And I can't tell you how many people I have walked through or walked with who started to walk away from their faith because life got hard. Doubt crept in. The world pushed back. And they went, God, where, where are you? Where are you? But what if we've got it all wrong? Like, what if, what if Jesus never promised that he has a comfortable plan for your life? Wonderful, yes. Comfortable, mm-mm. That was not what he promised. In fact, what if he promised just the opposite? If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 15? I believe that God has a word for us today, and it's a word about doing hard things. 
And it's a word that will prepare us to flourish in the real world that we live in, not the fantasy world that we wish we lived in. So as you're finding John chapter 15, let me remind you of where we've been since it has been a few weeks. We're sort of parachuting into the middle of a conversation that started in John 13, where Jesus gathered his disciples around a table to celebrate the Passover feast. They celebrated together and then he got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. It turned into the most awkward dinner of all time. Judas betrayed Jesus, walked out the door, and then Jesus began to prepare the rest of his disciples for living faithfully when he was not present bodily. And so he promised them that the Holy Spirit would come. He called on them to make their home in him, to abide in him, even as they waited to be taken to the home that he promised he was preparing for them. And it's in the middle of that conversation that Jesus gives the disciples this sort of orienting principle for their lives. He says to them in verse five of chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He goes, think about life like that. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me or makes, my home, makes their home in me, Jesus says, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And all of us go, okay, clear marching orders, Jesus, we got it. Like abide in you. And all of life flows out of that. And we picture ourselves sitting on a beach and abiding in Jesus with a good book while the waves crash. And that's what life is going to be like, right? John chapter 15, starting in verse 8, 8, Starting in verse 18, listen to what Jesus says. He says, if the world, what? Hates you. Like, whoa, 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 Jesus, where's all this coming from? I got that we're gonna abide in you and bear much fruit. He goes, yeah, yeah, you are. I'm just showing you the conditions under which you need to abide and bear fruit. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So is Jesus just like bringing a, a really sort of dour negative message? He just wants to sort of get us down before he lifts us up? Why is he doing this? He tells the disciples why he's sharing all of this with them. In verse one of chapter 16, jump down there with me. He says, I have said these things to you to, say it with me, church, to keep you from falling away. And I love, I love that Jesus tells his disciples why, why he's sharing all this with them, why he's so upfront with them, why he's not soft peddling his gospel. He wants them to know that it's going to be hard so that when it gets hard, they don't lose heart. Did you know you don't have to lose heart when life gets hard? And see, my guess is you, you've seen people just like I have who have walked through seasons of suffering and even persecution and pain and struggle, and it's caused them to back off of their faith. It's caused them even in some points to walk away from their faith. And then you've also seen people who have walked through very similar types of challenges and they come out the other side and they're stronger. They're more convinced that Jesus is Lord, not less convinced. So 
So what makes one person go one way and a, another person go another way? I think what Jesus is saying here is it's, it's all determined by what you're prepared for, what you're ready for, what you, what you expect to happen because Jesus prepares us for pain so that we can persevere in faith. He prepares us for pain so that we can persevere in faith. Now, as you're writing that down, let's just all acknowledge that we wish we weren't writing that down. Like, can we just be that upfront with each other? Like, we wish that what Jesus said was, I promise to rescue you from all pain. You're not gonna experience any pain because you are my followers. I will protect you from it all. But what if, what if God's promise is not, I will protect you from it? What if God's promise is I will preserve you through it? What if, what if Jesus is more interested in preserving us through suffering than rescuing us from it? And what if walking with Jesus really does require resilience? Because we will face resistance. See, Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared for hard things. There was this understanding from the inception of the church that Jesus' followers were going to be swimming upstream. They didn't expect to be accepted or applauded. The idea that Christianity would be not only accepted, but endorsed by the empire was otherworldly to the first Christians. The idea that they might get a tax break because they gave to a church Crazy, crazy. They expected that they were going to be the away team, not the home team in the empire when the church was founded. There was never the promise of ease or acceptance, rather just the opposite. There was the promise of resistance at every turn. Okay, so let's take a step back and just acknowledge that... um, We live in a different time and a different place than the people who were first hearing Jesus teach this. We live in the wake of 2,000 years of church history, in the wake of 1,700 years of Christendom, in the wake of 400 years of religious tolerance. And even if we sense that that is lessening in our day and our time, it is still a reality that as Jesus followers, we enjoy to a large degree in our nation today. The influence of Christianity is the air that we breathe, you guys. I mean, the fact that we value human life, that we want all people to be educated, that we care about the poor, that we have some semblance of sexual morality. These are all kingdom contributions. You understand that, right? Like those are the, that is the influence of of 2000 years of church history. And I think we live in a moment, I I do think we live in a moment of, of transition between being a quote unquote Christian culture or Christianized culture and a post-Christian culture. Uh, Mark Sayers, the great um, Australian theologian, puts it like this. He says, we live in a day and time where we want the kingdom, but not the king. 
That's brilliant. Here's what he means. He means all the things we just talked about, valuing human life, caring about the poor, um, having some semblance of morality in our cultural moment. Like we want those things, but we don't want to bow to Jesus as king. So all that to say, when we talk about quote unquote persecution in the West, we're talking about something wildly different than what Jesus's original followers walked into. You just have to know that. But here's what I also want you to know. That is not true around the globe. There are still people today who will gather in underground churches in China, in India, throughout the Middle East, all around the world, who will gather for fear of their life. They will bow and worship Jesus as Lord. They will gather around a communion table, remember his life, death, and resurrection at fear that they will be killed because they are doing that. So the way that we read this passage of scripture is shaped by the world that we live in. And I just want to acknowledge that at the onset. I'm going to do my best to preach and apply this message for Emmanuel Faith Community Church in 2024 with an eye on the fact that the, the global and historic church would read this a bit differently because of the world that they live in. Does that make sense? So let's go back to verse 18 and let's explore in more detail what Jesus taught because what he taught is preparing us to live in the world as his followers. And it's really important. Here's what he said, verse 18. He said, if the world, what? Hates you. So I think he's talking about the, the quote unquote people of the world, the systems of the world, the enemy who's the prince of this world. So think of it in every aspect of human life, there's resistance. And he says, no, that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, Jesus is nothing if not consistent. I mean, when he first sent his followers out, go read about it in Matthew chapter 10. He tells his followers, you, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Now, if you are a football coach and you give that pep talk to your team before the game, <laughs> that's not exactly inspiring. Like, let's just... Can you imagine like Kyle Shanahan and Andy Reid getting their team together and they're like, all right, you guys, you're like sheep and they're wolves. Like put your hand in the middle. We are about to get absolutely destroyed. On three, one, two, three, destroyed, right? And you run out and you're like, oh no, right? Like if I'm one of Jesus's first followers, I'm going, um, hey, I know you're the son of God and all, but I think you might've mixed that up. Aren't we the wolves and they're the sheep? And Jesus is like, I didn't stutter. I didn't stutter. And he's calling on his disciples to expect widespread criticism from the very beginning. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I experience rejection or criticism, I sometimes wonder, God, where are you? And Jesus is shifting the paradigm so definitively, and he's saying that widespread rejection does not mean God's absence. It doesn't mean God's absence. In fact, be ready for it. Be ready for it. Uh, since I brought up football, let's just stay on that subject. And um, it is Super Bowl Sunday next week, so it applies. But some of the most brutal hits in football are, are what we call blindside hits, right? 
And a blindside hit is when a player is going one direction and they don't see a hit that's coming, right? And if you notice, what happens in a blindside hit is not that the hit is any more forceful than hitting head on at the line. When a linebacker hits a running back at the line, there's a lot of force that goes into it, but both are ready for it. A blindside hit can knock somebody off their feet. Why? They weren't ready for it. And Jesus is saying to his followers, I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready for widespread criticism. I want you to be ready for rejection. I want you to be ready. I want you to have to work that muscle of resilience because this world isn't just going to welcome you as you are. There's going to be pushback at every turn. And what we expect determines what we experience. My neighbor, Mark, um, helps people train for like tough mudder runs where like you um, do a race and you have to like climb over barricades and crawl under barbed wire and run with backpacks on and sounds like a good vacation to me, right? Um, But people love it. They love it because it's what they're ready for. It's what they train for. It's what they expect. And I think Jesus is shifting our paradigm to go, what, what do you expect? What do you, when you become a follower of Jesus, what do you expect? Yeah. Or resistance. And, and there's a very specific reason that Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for rejection. Look back at verse 17 with me. Now, I want you to ignore that pesky little heading that says the hatred of the world, okay? Because if you were just to read through from verse 17 to 18, listen to what you would hear. These things I command you so that you will, what? Love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So in the context, Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to love I want you to love passionately. I want you to love with everything that you have. I want you to love even when you are what? Hated. Even when you are hated. He doesn't want his followers to to react emotionally to the pushback that they get from the world, from the enemy. He wants them to respond intentionally. Listen to the way that Jesus would put it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is different, you guys. That is a different message than the one that you're getting that we get in the world all the time. I can so easily fall into a quid pro quo relationship with the world where I just simply receive and then give back what I've received from them. And Jesus is saying, not my followers. That's not how we do things. See, my guess is the greatest determining factor on whether or not you like somebody is whether or not you think they like you. I mean, you could find out that Mother Teresa didn't like you and you'd be like, yeah, she wasn't all that great. <laughs> Mother T, what? what'd, she, what'd she ever do? <laughs> and Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works. He goes, even the tax collectors do that. My people are called to something different. Here's what he's saying. The world's hatred does not nullify Jesus's command to love. Let me say it again. The world's hatred does not nullify Jesus's command to love. 
like, what if Jesus followers took this seriously on, like, social media? Oh, man, that would be a game changer, wouldn't it? Social media might not exist. I don't know. Like, what if we took this seriously in our families where that rejection hits closer to home than in any other place? What if you took this command seriously in your workplace and said, I'm going to commit to loving even if and even when. Here's the next thing that Jesus is going to do. He wants to give them not only the expectation that they will be criticized, but he wants to give them an understanding of why the world hates them. An understanding of why the world hates them. And he's going to give a few reasons for that. He, he, he wants to dive into the details because he wants you to understand where this is coming from. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 19. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. They're going to do all of this on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is the quintessential It's not you, it's me, right? It's me they hate, Jesus says. It's me they're rejecting, not you. And the first reason that Jesus tells those who are his followers that the world is gonna hate them is because they're not of the world. They're not playing the same game. They don't hold the same values. They're not willing to just go and swim downstream with everyone else. They are, you are different. In fact, you're weird. Would you just turn to the person next to you and say, you're weird. You're weird. You're weird. Man, like some of you guys are like, I'm so glad I came to church today because I've been waiting to tell them they're weird. You You got a little bit too much excitement out of that. Did you know that the etymology of the word that we translate church, it's the word ecclesia, and it quite literally means to be called out of. That Jesus is saying, you are called out people. You are, you are weirdos. You're different. You have a different value system, a different way of being, a different OS. There's a different way that you go about living in the world. Therefore, John Calvin would write and he would say, the gospel cannot be published without instantly driving the world to rage. Like you tell the world, repent and believe the good news. Tell the world you're on the wrong course. You are heading toward judgment. And what Calvin said and what Jesus would echo is that's not gonna make you a whole lot of friends. That's not going to make you a whole lot of friends. I mean, we are so far out there that Peter would refer to the church as strangers and aliens. That wasn't a compliment. I mean, like, think of how weird it would be. Like, just, just hypothetically, like, do, do a thought, thought. Let's do a thought experiment together, okay? Let's just imagine a room with, like, let's just say 900 people in it who are actually aliens, Okay. 
and they were gathering together and they were singing songs about like how great it is to be an alien. <laughs> and, and how much they, they, they just were bowing down to their deity. And then, like think, like, think about it. So the aliens are singing alien songs. And then they're like, you know what we should do? We should make this a little bit easier for non-aliens to be a part of. So here's what we should do. What are some songs that they're singing on um, non-alien radio stations? <laughs> Let's sing some of those here. And then maybe people outside of our alien colony will come in and they'll be like, they get me. They, they, they understand me. And for so long, that's the way the church approached evangelism. When the scriptures were saying all along, you're weirdos. You have a different value system, a different operating system. Don't try to fit in. You were built different. And Jesus is clear from the very beginning that we are to present a radical and beautiful alternative, a new way to be human. And as part of that, we are in conflict with the values that the quote-unquote world holds. I mean, try presenting a peaceful resolution to a conflict that includes violence. Try valuing generosity instead of maximized profits. Try caring about the poor and those overlooked instead of taking advantage of them. Try operating with a high sexual integrity in an anything-goes world. Try speaking up for the unborn. The way of Jesus is still alien. It's still different. And sometimes it's very different even within the church. But Jesus is calling his disciples to be people who swim upstream for God's glory and for the world that he loves good. Here's the second thing he says, because he wants them to understand. He says, I have not come and spoken to them. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without excuse. And Jesus quotes Psalm 35 and Psalm 69 when he says that. So what's this deal that if I had not shown up, the world would not be guilty? What does Jesus mean? Like, does his, his entering the scene in the pages of history cause guilt? No, I think he clarifies it when he says they have no excuse. They have no excuse. No one could claim ignorance. The religious, political, and social leaders were filled with such darkness that they killed the Messiah without cause. Nothing that they could point to that would say he is worthy of death. And Jesus comes and he is the light that brings revelation of sin. His very life drew out the fact that they were off course with the way that God had designed them to live. See, the world hated Jesus because their sin was exposed. And it hates Jesus' followers oftentimes for very similar reasons. So let's reframe the conversation a little bit. What if we started to assume that there were convictions that we hold as Jesus followers that put us at odds with our current cultural moment? Like instead of trying to fit in, what if we assumed that there were values that we held that were just definitively different because we bowed to Jesus as Lord? 
Or maybe we could say it like this. If there are no convictions we hold that run contrary to the popular voices in our world, it very well may not be Jesus that we are following. Let me say that again. If there are no convictions we hold that run contrary to the popular voices in our world, it may very well not be Jesus who we are following. And I, I get it, you guys. It's so hard in our cancel culture. I mean, one thing you say, you can be written off by friends that you have had for decades. That's, that's hard. I, as, as a pastor, I get that. I think it's one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and he said, am I now trying to seek the approval of man or God? Like, what, what am I going after here? Am I trying to win the, uh, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he breaks it down so simplistically that it just grates against us. Because what he's saying is that it's impossible to be a people pleaser and a Jesus follower. Oh, because the world is at odds with the claims of the gospel. Now, let me just hit pause here for a moment. And we just need to recognize that some people carry the name Christian and they are hated publicly, not because they reflect the way of Jesus, but just because they are loud and they are jerks. Like, can we disagree on that? Like, we all know those people. And you're, you're like, Ryan, you're not asking me to be like that, are you? No, because there are people who carry the name of Jesus and they're offensive and they call it conviction, opinionated and they call it faith, antagonistic and they call it evangelism. Jesus is calling us to be definitively loving in the midst of the hatred that comes our way. That's the calling. That's the resilience. That's the fortitude that he's calling us to build. Not being a jerk, just being a genuine follower of Jesus who bows down to him as Lord and longs for the world to respond to the good news of the gospel. One final thing, one final way Jesus wants to prepare us. He says this, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the whom? The spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Once again, this is one of those areas that I just wish Jesus had said something a little bit different. I wish he would have said in the midst of suffering and persecution and trials, I'm going to send the spirit and you are going to be the wolves and they're going to be the sheep. They're going to bow down to you. They're, you're going to take names. The heads are going to roll. Like you are going to be on top. Like that's, like, that's what I want the spirit to do. What does he say the spirit will do? Testify about me. And I think what Jesus is saying is in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain, from the world, from the devil, from your own sinful decisions, in the midst of all of that, anticipate the Spirit's witness. Anticipate his voice. I mean, you show me people who have suffered for their faith, and I will show you people who have heard the voice of God in ways that those of us who haven't, just haven't experienced. That pain hollows out a deep well 
where we get to hear the voice of God in unique ways that we wouldn't if life were always on a mountaintop. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I've, I've loved that quote for so long because I think it gives us just a good organizing principle of what to expect when we enter into seasons of pain and trials and sorrows. But I started to ask the question this week, what does God shout in our pain? Like, what does he shout? Yeah, his voice is more heard, but what does he shout? And in this passage of scripture, what we see is that the spirit shouts, Jesus, Jesus. Like in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, we're reminded that Jesus suffered. We're reminded that Jesus overcame. We're reminded that Jesus will one day make all things new. We're reminded that Jesus will never let us go, that pain or death nor angels or principalities or things present or things to come or anything else in all of creation, none of it can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when we are walking through pain and suffering and trials, the voice of God starts to grow and shout in us, pointing us to Jesus. So that we can then, if you read the words of verse 27, so that we can then take that message in the midst of suffering and pain to the world around us. I think that's such an important word, you guys, because it can be so easy to get stuck in suffering. It can be so easy to start to, to take on a victim mentality where we just sulk in our sorrow. I'm reminded of what Edith Eager, a Holocaust survivor wrote. She wrote and said, suffering is universal, but victimhood is optional. And I believe that Jesus, by the power of the spirit, does not want his followers to get stuck in a victim mentality. He wants them to continue to walk faithfully with a sense of fortitude in their soul, to continue to hold on to Jesus as Lord in the midst of a world that presses back against us. See, victims ask, why me? And here's the thing, you guys, some of you have been victimized. Some of you have walked through sorrow and you've walked through pain that you didn't choose. And I'm not minimizing that at all. I believe that Jesus, I know Jesus sees you and he is walking with you in the midst of it, but he doesn't want you to get stuck there. He doesn't want you to get stuck there. And see, victims ask, why me? But people who suffer with a fortitude of faith say, God, what now? What now? You're testifying, the Spirit's testifying of Jesus, strengthening me in Jesus. So what now? How do you want me to love? How do you want me to share? How do you want me to respond in redemptive ways? What now? Jesus ends this section by saying, I've said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. There it is. He doesn't want us to fall away in the midst of pain. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. But they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus expects his followers 
to be walking through persecution and saying to each other, he told us this was coming. He told us this is what it'd be like. Is it hard? Yeah. But are we blindsided? No. No. See, in a few weeks, Peter would be thrown in jail, Stephen would be martyred in the streets, and every follower of Jesus would be labeled a heretic. Their whole lives were about to be turned upside down. In a few hours, Jesus was going to hang on a Roman cross and give his life for the penalty of sin. Their lives are turned upside down, and Jesus wants them to be ready to walk through that. Because walking by faith requires resilience. But here's what you need to know. It's worth it. It's worth it. It results in abundance. I told you today that I wanted to preach with not only our, our church body in mind, but with an eye to the global and historic church. That there are places where we would gather and read this passage of scripture and we would have very different analogies and metaphors and illustrations in our mind. In fact, um, one of those places in, is in North India where we have a group of partners right now. Uh, this is a picture of um, our church partnering with these pastors um, about a year ago where they gathered in order to encourage pastors. The paper that you see there that's sort of blurred out um, is a list of all the pastors who are serving. And they're coming to this gathering and there's a column on this sheet that says, are they in jail or not? They're planting churches amongst 20 unreached people groups and there's resistance at every turn from Hindu vigilantes and from the government, they're under surveillance and it is normal for these pastors to get beaten up and thrown in jail because of their faith. Today, today, there are 53 pastors that we are in partnership with who are in jail because of their faith. We could go on. There, there's a guy here today. His name is Vladimir. He's here from Russia. I got the chance to meet him in the courtyard. Um, flee because, fled Russia because of religious persecution. We have people who are here today, Andrew and Kate, who are working as missionaries in Chad, who are holding out the good news of the gospel to Muslim refugees and nomads who are traveling. Not an easy place where they expect and experience resistance at every turn. I tell you that just to say, let's lift our eyes a little bit, you guys. Not to feel bad because we live in the West, but I think Nick Rippon's encouragement to us in his great book, The Insanity of God, he went and he studied the persecuted church. And do you know what the message the persecuted church has for the church in the West? You know what it is? Here's their message. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. Don't ever give up in freedom, what we would never have given up in persecution. Oh, friends, let me just challenge you today. Would you abide in his love in a way that gives you a sense of soul strength that you wouldn't have without it? Would you focus on his mission, that that's why he's put you here, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then would you know that it is not difficult, it is impossible to live this out if you are not connected to people who can hold up your arms when life gets hard, to commit to community. Manual faith, let's do hard things.
Let's do hard things. And I'm not talking about 75 hard and I'm not talking about rucking and I'm not talking about misogi. Let's do hard things. Let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And let's follow him now as we celebrate his table. So Lord, would you prepare our hearts to remember the road that you walked and that you call us to be people who would take up our cross and follow after you. A life with you is wonderful, but it's probably not comfortable. And so Lord, if there are areas where we are settling for less, if there's areas where we're choosing our way over yours, if there's ways that we've silenced our voice or shrunk back in fear, as we go to your table, would you just bring those up in our heart? Invite us to repent and to find life in following you more fully. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.